Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbondatz.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast, where our alphabetic safari through the world of 007 has reached the letter S. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we set our sights on the creatives behind the scenes of Bond that fall under the 19th letter of the alphabet. It's the sparkling and sociable Mr. Brendan Duffy. Stupendous. <laughs> now, the letter S. Uh, it's going to take us quite a few weeks to get through. It's, uh, it reminds me of being back in the letter C. We've got specials coming up on Skyfall and Spectre. We've got an episode dedicated to the characters whose, sur- whose surnames begin with the letter S. And next week, a whole episode dedicated to Mr. Harry Saltzman, one of the um, original producers of the James Bond film. So a lot to look forward to over the coming weeks before we reach the letter T, which is going to be even more um, <laughs> ludicrous. Yeah. Um, do you want to give a shout out for our, the underappreciated James Bond movie moments, Brendan? Well, it is. Yes, it's going to be very tight now. We are The episode will roll out in October 2022. So if that's, if you listen to this in the future, it's gone. Don't bother. But if you if you are listening with enough time, we're still looking for those underappreciated Bond moments of the last 60 years. So we want an audio clip, no longer than two minutes, via email, podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah so get them to us as, as quickly as possible now. Quite urgent. So... You know, whatever tickles your fancy, if there's something that you feel is underappreciated and that you you really enjoy from the Bond series, then let us know. Absolutely, yeah. Send them in. We've spoken to a lot of people already, but uh, we need more um, of your underappreciated moments. And uh, it can be anything. It can be, you know, a character. It can be a scene. It can be, um, uh, like, um, a, a henchman, a song, a musical cue, a stunt, anything. Pierce Brosnan um, uh, being uh, his neck being tightened in that contraption. I always like that face that he does. That is uh, the way he does the voice as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you meant nothing to me. Hmm. One last. Oh. 
mean, that's appreciated. I think that's that's appreciated. Look, send us your appreciated moments as well. If this is just a moment that you really, really, really love, then send it in. I mean, it's not appreciated in terms... It's not going to be in, like, the top 10 moments, is it? <laughs> <laughs> the Brosnan pain face. It, uh, it is legendary. It is legendary. Um, so... Uh, let's move on to this episode then. We've got quite a few um, varied people to talk about. This is going to be all about creatives behind the scenes, with a little exception, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but some really interesting people to talk about. Um, we've got some um, uh, stunt people. We've got um, composers. We've got visual effects people, uh, actors, also uh, all sorts of weird and wonderful people. So uh, why don't we kick off with an underappreciated score? S is for Sarah, Eric Serra. So Eric Serra is a French composer and he was born in September 1959. His father was actually a famous uh, songwriter in France in the 50s and 60s. So obviously that meant from an early age, Eric was uh, exposed to music and uh, and the way it was made. And I imagine all the time if his, if his dad was a, a, a songwriter. Um so yeah, that that sort of kick-started a love of music, I guess. And in the early eighties, he met Luke Besson. So um, I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard of Luke Besson, Tom. Absolutely, uh, yeah. I mean, a legendary French filmmaker. Yeah, um, Leon, I think, is the one that uh, um, is the one that I think introduced me to him. But then Fifth Element. Yeah, Fifth Element. Um, did you Taken? No, that was. Did he oh. produce Taken? Oh, he pro- yeah, you're probably right because it's a Euro Euro production. Yeah. yeah. But in terms of uh, working together, Eric Serra, um, he met Luke Besson and he was asked to score his first film, Le Dernier Combat. Have you seen that one? 1983? Mm. Not aware of that one, no. No. And then from then on, he's basically, he's scored all of his, his directed films um, except Angel A. Um, so in terms of... We, you know, it was the the professional, also known as, like you said, Leon, in 1994, that uh, that propelled him to mainstream English-speaking awareness and what got him the job, essentially, of Bond. Um, Martin Campbell said, three or four composers turned this film down before we'd shot it. John Barry went to first. <laughs> this, this annoyed me. I wish <laughs> I'd have re- read that quote. <laughs> Oh, and he said no. Um, he established Bond, obviously. Um, Martin Campbell said that he loved his music. Uh, so on the fourth one, the fourth attempt at trying to get a composer, he said, I'd seen the professional, Leon, and I just thought, in keeping with bringing Bond up to date, Eric would be a perfect candidate for it. <sighs> <laughs> so then in 1995... He was chosen to compose the score. And like Martin Campbell said, he wanted to bring that sound up to date, make it a bit more avant-garde than we were used to in the previous Bond films. Um, The the soundtrack itself received mixed reviews. Um, Some saw it as being quite innovative in the the way it it came out and uh, the way it it goes along with the film. But... Um, others missed that classic Bond sound. 
because you didn't hear any of the the Monty Norman or John Barry sound at all in it. Um, Martin Campbell said, I was disappointed in the music. I was dubbing the tank chase. I think we've spoken about this before in the Goldeneye episode, but I'll yeah. cover it again because it's, it's quite interesting. He said the music that came in for that was exactly the same register as the tanks. In other words, it disappeared. So I rang Eric in France and I said, look, we've got a real problem here. I remember saying to him, there's no point in using synth in this because it would just disappear. And so he asked Eric for the Bond theme. Um, and he said that you need to use the percussion and brass to crash through those effects. And his answer to Martin Campbell was, well, lower the effects. And he said, Oof. I'm not going to do that. And that was the end of our conversation. Um, <laughs> so then uh, they basically hired John Altman, who we talked about because John Altman worked on No Time to Die, didn't he? That's right. Yeah, he did the brass section, the brass sections for um, Hans Zimmer or whoever was working for yeah. Hans Zimmer on that um, on that, and uh, particularly in the Cuba sequence, I think is uh, is where John Altman's music shines. And I think for the tank se- tank tank sequence in Goldeneye, I've mentioned this several times. There are moments in that with John Altman's brass that sounds reminiscent of stuff that he would do later in uh, in No Time to Die. So uh, yeah, key yeah. collaborator. So he he was um, Eric Serra's conductor, and uh, Eric Serra said that was done by my conductor because I didn't agree with this. I had composed a very modern version, and I think they were a bit afraid because it was too modern. So they finally asked my conductor to do an orchestral version of the James Bond theme. I didn't quite agree. It's a pity too. We did the whole score in a very modern way in a very new way. So I think it was an especially good idea to do one sequence using the old version. Uh, couldn't couldn't disagree with him more because I think <laughs> by the time when you're watching that, by the time the tank scene comes and you hear the Bond theme, it's a breath of fresh air. <laughs> it's much needed, and um, I, I think originally it was meant to be um, a drive, a nice a, was it a lovely drive through St Petersburg, something like that. The track's still on the soundtrack; you can listen to it. Um, I think people have rescored it as well, haven't they? So you can watch it online, the tank sequence with, with Eric Serra's original with, with, score. Yeah. 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 And uh, it's completely different. Um, as you would expect, it, it matches a lot of the soundtrack that we, we ended up getting. Um, so Eric Serra is he's sometimes known as RXRA due to the French pronunciation of his name. So we are obviously bastardizing the pronunciation because uh, I imagine it's Ike. Oh, very good. That, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. So the, on the fifth element, it actually is credited to RXRA um, rather than Eric Serra. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, he when he was offered it, he said, he didn't look. I didn't look back because I'm a very big fan, so I knew everything. I could describe all the movies. I had old James Bond videos, not since I was born, but almost, and I've seen all of them probably 10 times each, so I knew it perfectly. Well, why did you deliver what you delivered then? <laughs> That's what I'll say to that. Ridiculous. Uh, and in terms of the Bond theme, he said, yes, they requested me to use it a couple of times. So I used it. I think this theme is a nice one, but it's a bit old fashioned now. So the most difficult thing was to use it and make it sound modern, which was not so obvious because I think every time they've used it, it always sounds old fashioned. I think I found a way. Again, I couldn't disagree more. It's one of the, It's a timeless classic. Yeah, you know David Arnold, 
knew that and that's what made his soundtrack so great having seen um tomorrow never dies and uh the world is not enough on the big screen recently um you realize one thing about david arnold is he's not afraid to use that john barry theme mm. yeah. it's just it's constant and it makes the bond film it makes it feel like a bond film um mm-hmm. and to be fair eric serra was young when he made this i think he was probably 36 yeah yeah coming up um wanted to put his stamp on this iconic franchise um do his own thing and to be fair you know they were reinventing bond at this stage so you can you can sort of see why he did it um because if you don't change things everything just stagnates doesn't it so i can sort of see where he's coming from yeah so i'm thinking back to bill conti when he did fiori's only and he was you know instructed by cubby to use the bond theme use it it's like rocky's theme you you use it when (laughs) when you need to um and yeah, I guess they could have been a bit more insistent that he did that from the start, really. But uh, there you go. Yeah. So there we go. That's that's Eric's error. Hopefully he never goes near another Bond. <laughs> I'm sure he won't. <laughs> um, I was just looking at some quotes from um, uh, from John Altman. I'm, we should have done him really on, under A, but uh, maybe one day we'll, we'll cover him. But um, apparently when he did the tank sequence, he did it on a, he was told he was going to do it on a Friday. And he had to record it by the Tuesday called his friends and he composed something on the Saturday, orchestrated it on Sunday, gave it to the copyist on Monday, another recording session on Tuesday. And the film came out on Friday. And Michael Wilson apparently said to him, if I'd known you were this quick, I'd have given you the whole film. Oh, what could have been? Yeah. Well, what yeah. could have been? It could have been John Barry. That's there's the could have been. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a shame, isn't it? I mean, the thing is with, with the golden eye score, I think it does give it a certain flavor. Um, and one thing I will always thank it for is is um, the the way they use the music in the game, mm-hmm. because when I see the film, it, it really makes me reminisce about the game. Um, and I sort of like that Bond, the version of the Bond theme that's played on like the big drum type thing. I don't know what it is. Um, so there are moments, but there's just also moments where it's just like gurgling away in the background. And you're just thinking, what is this? <laughs> yeah. It's not it's not right for um no, and there's also moments where you, it's screaming out for the, and it just doesn't. Like we don't get that. No, yeah, well, it just falls flat. Yeah, there is. I mean, there's the bit, the famous bit we talked about before, where you know where the plane comes up, pulls up right at the end of the mm-hmm. pre-title sequence, and it just yeah. needs the da da. Yeah, it just needs the bond thing to kick in. Yeah. Not there, doesn't happen, and then we get. Goldeneye, the the song. Um, but yeah, if you want to learn more about Goldeneye, we did a whole episode on it back in the day, so uh, you can revisit that one. S is for Simmons, Bob Simmons. Now, Bob Simmons was an English stunt performer who holds a unique place in the world of Bond. Do you know what that is, Brendan? Uh, he was the first uh, gun barrel. Yeah, he was the very first p- person seen on screen in any James Bond movie. He played, he he doubled for Sean Connery in, in Doctor No, basically, and performed the gun barrel uh, in Doctor No. Therefore, being the first person to appear on screen in a James Bond film. But um, I mean, his his input is is just is huge. It's much more. It goes way beyond just being um the guy in the gun barrel. He's a crucial component to the success of the Bond films, I think. 
Um, and he worked on the movies from Dr. No up until 1985's A View to a Kill. So he was the stunt coordinator for every Bond film except for From Russia With Love, um, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, uh, as well was one that he sat out. Um, but like I said, he was the man in the gun barrel for the first three James Bond movies. So a little bit of background on Bob Simmons. He was born in 1922 uh, in Fulham um, and he initially planned to be an actor Um he um after school he he worked uh he was actually had time in the army uh as an army physical training instructor um but acting he thought was in his in his blood and his first acting role according to imdb came in uh, 1939 when he was aged just 17 he played it appeared in a film called reform school and he played a schoolboy called johnny as an actor but um he also made his stunt debut that year Uh, doing stunts in Alfred Hitchcock's Jamaica Inn. So he's working in Hollywood from a very early age. Um, And he crossed paths with another 007 stuntman, George Leach. Um, They both appeared uh, in a jousting sequence in Ivanhoe with Roger Moore Mm -hmm. in the 50s. So Simmons, uh, Bob Simmons, um, started working for Cubby Broccoli in 1953 uh, when Cubby was running Warwick Films in the UK. And he did some stunts in a film called The Red Beret, also known in America as Paratrooper. That was directed by Terence Young, written by Richard Maybaum, and in the cast was Walter Gotel. So you can see that the Bond family was already beginning to, to mm. form, you know, nearly a decade before the first Bond film. Um, so talking to Bondage magazine in 1980, uh, um, Bob Simmons said, after doing one third of the picture, this is Red Beret, by the way. After doing one third of the picture, Cubby told me he'd employ me on all his pictures. They used to bring over a stunt arranger from America. But after I'd worked on the Red Beret, they didn't bring him over anymore. I, I got the job. So he worked on a number of Warwick films, including the original No Time to Die. Um, and he was also sort of a very in-demand stunt double. He was a stunt double for Peter Sellers on Tom Thumb, Denim Elliott on Holiday in Spain, and Gregory Peck in The Guns of Navarone. And according to Terence Young, Simmons was actually considered or looked at to play James Bond in Doctor No. So he was an early contender. Mm. Um, but obviously, um, Connery won the role and uh, Bob Simmons became his stunt double and also Doctor No's stunt arranger. Um, Cubby said, we've chosen our man. Can you get out to Jamaica and set up the action? Um, and I mean, Bob Simmons obviously was gutted that he wasn't chosen as Bond, but he was happy that it was Sean Connery. Um, and he was just very keen to work with Terence Young again. So he jumped at the chance. So in Dr. No, Bob Simmons drives the the soft top sunbeam um, in the chase sequence um, on in Jamaica. And he also drives the hearse in that sequence as well. Uh, it's Bob Simmons' body that the tarantula crawls over um, when Connery didn't want to do that. Um and he was often the double fighting against Sean Connery as well uh, in, in Doctor No. Um, in the f- uh, final act of the film, Simmons is uh, doubles for Sean Connery when he's fighting uh, Doctor No. And as for the gun barrel, obviously this was the very first film. It was the only first time it was going to be done. I don't think it, they knew at the point at this point it was going to be such an iconic part of the series. But Morris Binder just said at that point, nobody knew who Sean Connery was. Nobody knew who Bob Simmons was. So what difference did it make? Um, I've always been a bit confused by by the fact that they did used a double for those early films. Mm. Um, Because it doesn't look anything like Sean Connery, I don't think. 
um, which led different, which, different walk. Yeah, and it made me think: is that Bond Bond's gun that is the barrel that shoots? Oh, yeah, that's New shooting conspiracy theory. Else. Yeah, well, it just it's confusing. I think well, that means Bond gets shot. No, but I always thought it was Bond's gun, and that was just a random person getting shot. Do you know what I mean? And then they flipped it for Thunderbolt. Right. Anyway. But like I said, Bob Sims had been working in Hollywood shooting stunts and he brought a lot of that back, all that experience back with him to the UK um, and to the Bond films. And he made sure that the fights were choreographed in really great detail. And this is something that um, was not not necessarily unique to Bond, but definitely made Bond stand out against other action films. So he was talking about uh, choreographing stunts he said I used to work with Sean very carefully Sean used to say what do I do and what do you do for me generally I used to do a master shot I'd have the whole fight planned we'd go right through it and film it with a double we would then shoot Sean for the necessary inserts but we'd do the whole thing as a master shot first with doubles and as the film was progressing I said to Sean I want you to come in and look at this sequence. I'll show you something. He'd come out and say, okay, let's work on it. And then they would work right through the night. Sean was very, very keen to do the stunts right. So um, I think that makes a massive difference in these films. Uh, now, Bob was unavailable from, from Russia with Love and Peter Perkins came in to do the stunt coordinating on that film. Um, but Simmons was called back to double for Sean Connery in the train sequence fight, mm. one, uh, something we talk about a lot. And he called it, Bob Simmons called it, one of the most realistic examples of hand-to-hand combat ever filmed, calling it a peach of a fight. Um, and obviously, we've talked about this at length, but like, you know, Peter Hunt's editing on that is also terrific. Yeah. Um, so then for Goldfinger, Bob Simmons doubles uh, for Harold Sakata and also Kish, um, who's thrown off the top of Fort Knox by Oddjob. And he choreographed the fight with Pussy Galore in the barn. And the final fight between Bond and Oddjob um, in that film, he called that one of the most memorable I've ever staged and I shall always be proud of. Again, something that we're big fans of on this podcast. So for Thunderball, um, they shot that in CinemaScope and so the title sequence had to be redone. So perhaps they reused the same gun barrel the first three films? I'd have to check that. Um, But Sean Connery then did the gun barrel uh, in that sequence. Um, but Bob Simmons played a huge role in that film because he was Jack uh, Jacques Bouvard in the uh, pre-titles teaser. You know, the guy who's dressed up uh, as a woman, as the widow, yeah. uh, the Bond fights. Bob Simmons then also drive, drove Count Lippy's car. Um, and this is something we'll talk about a little bit later in the podcast when we talk about someone else. But he drove the car that was struck by the ro- rockets from uh, Fiona Volpe's motorcycle. And he had to dive out of the car at the last second before it goes into the ditch. Um, then moving on on Urine Live Twice Bob Simmons choreographed the volcano battle with 120 stuntmen again something we're big fans of here on the podcast um, didn't do Honor Majesty's Secret Service but did Diamonds Are Forever Live and Let Die um, and then missed uh, Man with the Golden Gun that's right returning for The Spy Who Loved Me where he choreographed the Jaws Bond fights and actually if you remember it was Bob Simmons who suggested that Jaws should survive that film which then paved the way mm, for Jaws yeah. to come back in Moonraker. And moving on, uh, Fiori's only, he did did the stunts, coordinated the stunts. Um, he also played the guard who blows up Bond's Lotus Esprit when he tries to open the door. Um, and then he did Octopussy and then A View to a Kill as well. 
Um, and that was his last Bond film. Um, but talking about his work, he said, first, the script is presented to me. I start by broadening out the visual ideas as Cubby and Michael allow me to elaborate. I've never had any opposition from them on anything I do. Everything can be worked out if you give me give it plenty of thought. Nothing is left to guesswork. Simple stunts are often the most difficult, and yet you have your own set of rules. Cubby says, look, I can't replace you if I lose you, but I can always get another stuntman. So outside of Bond, Bob Simmons worked with Sean Connery on Shalako, The Offence, and The Man Who Would Be King. And then he also worked with Roger Moore on The Wild Geese, on which Bob Simmons doubled for Richard Burton, and then also Sea Wolves as well. Um, he retired then in the yeah after finishing on the Bond films. He wrote an autobiography called Nobody Does It Better, and he sadly died in October 1987. So he had retired and didn't really get a chance to enjoy that much of it, hmm. sadly. Um, but uh, he was, you know, a legendary, legendary stunt coordinator, and he was recognised for that by the Motion Picture Hall of Fame in Hollywood. Um, when he was voted the best stunt coordinator for For Your Eyes Only in 1981. He, Simmons said uh, he was, you know, thrilled by the recognition, he said, because the Hall of Fame is dedicated to the men and women who make motion pictures a true art form, and I have regarded my award as an accolade for all that I had learned and achieved in a career devoted to stunt work. So, yeah, I mean, he, Bob Simmons basically then became the model um, for, for stunt professionalism, really. And yeah, raise the bar and establish Bond as a place for, for great stunts and great fight sequences. Yeah, it became another staple of Bond, didn't it? What makes Bond a Bond film, especially in those early days. And we talked about, it's funny because we talked about most of them in the ABC episodes, didn't we, really early on? Yeah, so Ken like Adam, Bob, Morris Binder, yeah, the lot. Yeah, because yeah, like Bob Simmons is all the way up here, yeah, <laughs> away, long down the alphabet, but um, yeah. another... Um, Absolute key component of the Bond films, yeah. Coffee? Medium sweet. Two medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z where you can buy us a coffee for just £3 or for three pounds a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. Is that all it does? S is for Sinclair, Anthony Sinclair. So Anthony Sinclair was a suit designer and during the 1950s, he had established a bespoke tailoring business in Mayfair in London. So he also had built up clientele from the British army who, although he didn't, he didn't tailor army clothes, but they wanted him to design their civilian attire, which is called Mufti. And when we were at school, did you have <laughs> Mufti day? Yeah, I'm aware of Mufti day. I don't think we, we called it civvies at school. Civvies, right. Well, we called it Mufti day and I never knew why <laughs> until today. So um, that's something I go. So they, they wanted it to be a slim fit um, with a single-breasted coat with a natural shoulder, um, something that wasn't the norm at the time. And he said, you've got to put guts into a suit. Any well-made suit should be able to take it, roll it into a ball, crush it, stamp on it, sleep in it, and there you are. You're back again, you see. 
And so this this um, falls in line with what happened with Terence Young. So Terence Young directed Doctor No, and he uh, took Sean Connery to Anthony Sinclair because Anthony Sinclair was Terence Young's personal tailor. So Anthony Sinclair was given the task of transforming this. Uh, what what was it they called him when it dishevelled? An overgrown stuntman, wasn't it? Oh. The overgrown stuntman, yeah. So they had to basically turn him into Bond, uh, make him suave and a bit more stylish. So Anthony Sinclair was given the task of designing those suits and making sure that, that they fit just as they they uh, were supposed to. And obviously, Terence Young told him to sleep in it and just live in it and always wear it, which uh, is backed up by what Anthony Sinclair said about about suits. Um, so I couldn't find much about Anthony Sinclair. Um, so again, if, if people want to email in and fill us in on any, any gaps, um, I know that he passed away in 1986 and he was responsible for all of the suits Sean Connery wore as James Bond. So in all the films. Uh, more recently, David Mason of Mason and Sons, he champions British brands in his, uh, his clothing business and in 2012 he relaunched Anthony Sinclair as a label yeah so he said for me it all started in 2012 with the rebirth of Anthony Sinclair I took the view that if we were ever going to relaunch the brand it had to be that year it was the 50th anniversary of the Bond films the Olympics were in London and the eyes of the world were on the city plus the games were of course opened by the Queen who jumped out of a helicopter with James Bond so they used that as a, a launch pad and he actually said that had that not been a success, they would have gone down a different path. So the, the success of the relaunch, along with, you know, in the year of the 50th anniversary, that really helped them focus and go down the path that they did. So if you go on the website now, it's all about British um, style and British design um, and heavy, heavy bond influences all over their website. In, in 2012, they released 24 ties, Bond-themed ties mm. as well. So, yeah, take a look at their website and see. I mean, if, you, if you're in the market for a suit, they are expensive. But, you know, if you want to look like Bond, you've got to pay the bucks. Yeah, just looking at um, Luella Chapman's book uh, on the fashioning of James Bond. Um, yeah. One thing to note, obviously... Sinclair, as well as tailoring for um, Sean Connery, would have had to tailor for Bob Simmons as well as his double. Mm. Um, so nice little link yeah. there. Um, but like you said, um, the cut of the Sinclair suit uh, had to be allow him to carry a gun under his left shoulder. Um, um, and so in an interview with ABC News, said the only gimmick, if I may call it as such, is one where Bond carries the gun. And the whole art of it is to cut the suit in such a way to which it's just that little bit fuller so that it follows the contour of the figure. Um, and the suits were especially designed for the sequences. Um, he says, you've got to put your guts into that. So whatever you do to the suit, you see, you see a well-made suit, you'll be able to take it into a ball, crush it, stamp on it, sleep in it. And then there you are, see it back again. So obviously that's like ties in with what we've heard about Connery before, you know, being told to, to sleep in the suit as well. Mm -hmm. So again, another cornerstone of the import, uh, like, you know, the Bond franchise, how Bond dresses. Um, well, huge, because he was the first, you know, on-screen movie proper Bond that we got. 
Um, yeah. And the look of him was, was integral. Yeah. Definitely. Right. S is for Spectre. Do you know what Spectre stands for? Do you remember? Uh, no, go on. Special Executive for Counterintelligence, Terrorism, Revenge and Extortion. And Spectre is a fictional global criminal terrorist organisation that first appeared in the Ian Fleming novel Thunderball and then subsequently in the movie Doctor No in 1962. And as we know, as we've discussed, ad nauseum, Spectre is tangled, completely tangled up with the Kevin McClory lawsuit um, because he had a claim to it being used in the movies due to the fact that he helped to write Thunderball with Ian Fleming and then was taken to court who took Ian Fleming to court to claim ownership of that. Um, and so Spectre then is tied up with that. So uh, Spectre re- basically replaced Smirsh as Bond's antagonist in the books. Um, and it's really important um, to note that that helps with the films because Smirsh was, t- was a part of the Russian um, uh, intelligence services, the, the sort of idea that is death, death to spies, whereas Spectre, is an organisation that's not aligned to Russia or any nation or any political leanings or ideology. So it means that the films could remain apolitical. So although the Russians are often seen as the enemies when Spectre's involved, it's not Russia. Hmm. Um, So that's why we see more of Russia in the, you know, in the 1980s. Um, So headed up by Blofeld, uh, Spectre, you'll find, is mentioned in Doctor No. Ju- Doctor Julius No works for them. And then they sort of appear a bit more uh, front and centre in From Russia With Love. You see Spectre Island, some sort of training facility for Spectre agents. Um, and they're basically behind the plot to take down Bond in From Russia With Love. And we see Blofeld on screen for the first time in that movie. But he's not named Blofeld in that. And he's only seen um, from behind. Um they expect to don't appear in Goldfinger, but they do return in Thunderball, which I think is probably my favourite appearance of Spectre. Um, they've got that bit where Blofeld's behind the screen and you've got all the Spectre agents around the side mm. and they have a big conference meeting. It's a, it's a fun, fun moment in Thunderball, I think. Um, then obviously they play a big part in You Only Live Twice and on Her Majesty's Secret Service and Diamonds Are Forever. And then after that, after Diamonds Are Forever, they have to retire Spectre from the movies because um, of the lawsuit. So you can return to our Never Say Never Again episode to learn more about the Kevin McClory situation and why that happened. But, you know, the lawsuit avoiding appearance of Blofeld in For Your Eyes Only um, aside, they didn't appear in the film until 2015 Spectre and then 2021's No Time to Die. There was a plan to use Spectre in The Spy Who Loved Me, but because of the lawsuits from Kevin McClory, they had to switch uh, Blofeld into being Stromberg. Um, so that's it. But interestingly, I found this out. I didn't. I, I hadn't realised this, but because of the lawsuit, um, Kevin McClory took um, Ian Fleming to court to claim ownership of the um, Thunderball scripts and everything within it. And uh, the trade-off was that Ian Fleming would keep the literary rights to Thunderball, but Kevin McClory would have the movie rights to Thunderball. So Spectre remained 
part of the canon in the books. And so John Gardner includes Spectre in a number of his uh, novels. Um, uh, but the video games later on, they wanted to use Spectre, but they couldn't. And so they were swapped out for an organization called Octopus. This is something we talked about before. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, Spectre was able to return after Kevin McClory died and his family did a lawsuit with them. And that's why we've got them returning in Spectre and, and No Time to Die. I think Spectre wastes their return. I think No Time to Die makes a better fist of it. I think they seem a bit more interesting in that movie. But um, looking at some of the famous members of Spectre, I mean, there's tons of them. Um, but in Thunderball, you've got number five is played by Philip Stone who I recognise from The Shining. He plays Delbert Grady, the um, former caretaker who um, Jack Torrance meets in the bathroom. Do you remember? Have you seen that film? I have, but I can't remember it, no. Yeah, he's like a bald guy. Anyway, he plays number five in Thunderball. Um, and then in uh, You Only Live Twice, you've got Burt Kwok, plays number three. Mm. We, and then uh, number four is played by Michael Chow, but dubbed by Fraser Hines of um, Doctor Who and Emmerdale fame. So hmm. there you go. Fraser Hines used to do uh, pantomime in uh, in Lincoln where I grew up. So uh, I've met him. Right, every, every year. Yeah. Him and, yeah. Him and Chris, Chris Chittle. Anyway, that's by the by. It's one for our American listeners there, pantomime. We used to have Fogwell Flax do ours. Who's that? <laughs> just used to do the circuit. Just a, like a comedian that used to, used to come and to the And his name was Fog, Fogwell, Fogwell Flax. Flax. Wow, I mean that's the name think, you don't I think, forget. I think that's I think so. I mean, yeah, I haven't made that up. Fogwell Flax, yeah. There we go. We'll have to look, include him in the show notes. <laughs> um, so aside from Blofeld, um, I mean, you've got lots of uh, different people involved with uh, Spectre. You've got Rosa Klebb, Red Grant, Largo, Vargas, uh, Count Lippy, um, Irma Bunt. Um, Winton Kidd are mixed up with with Spectre, Burt Saxby, Bambi and Thumper. But who do you think the most famous Spectre member beyond Blofeld is? You'll never get it. It's the cat. Blofeld's cat. Uh, (laughs) What's Blofeld's cat's name? Well, it's so funny you should ask me that because there's quite a lot of discussion online. It has been for years about what Blofeld's cat is called. Um, I found a couple of answers to it. Um, one suggests that the cat is called Solomon. And I think this comes from the cat that played the cat. (laughs) You only live twice and a Majesty's Secret Service and Diamonds Are Forever was called Solomon in real life as a Persian Angora. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't, any cat expert, cat experts out there can, can let me know if they've got a better, more definitive answer. Um, so that's one answer I came up. Another one I came up was t- Tiddies, and that was possibly a name of one of the cats that played him as well. Um, but did you know, do you know which Bond film? I mean, you're not going to know the answer to this, so I won't frame it as a question, actually. One Bond film um, which caused a, k- a kerfuffle with the, um, uh, the Cats on Film website <laughs> um, was Diamonds Are Forever, because Bond kicks one of Blofeld's cat um trying to get Blofeld to um reveal himself and that's what he says but wrong pussy and cats right. on film said wrong move an awful move on part of the filmmakers because kicking a defensive cat is a low blow and now we have lost all sympathy for the so-called hero of the film so yeah 
That's that's the Spectre. And it's a cloned cat though, isn't it? Well, there's several cats in Diamonds Are Forever, aren't there? So um, only one is real. Only one of them is is the right pussy, yeah. So yeah. Um, interestingly, as well, when when in For Your Eyes Only, the cat is there with Blofeld, um, but he sort of defects. He he sort of leaps off Blofeld's lap when Bond comes in to pick him up with the helicopter. Um, so obviously not that loyal. And there's that bit in You Only Live Twice, isn't there, where oh, the bon- cat's trying to escape. Um, <laughs> Again, so. I'm surprised the cat company are not worried by that because that cat is traumatized it's absolutely throttling it isn't he yeah um but yeah i mean the cat is basically one of the most parodied elements of james bond ever right mm. you yeah, could list evil, uh, yeah. inspector gadget inspector gadget yeah that's the classic one isn't it um i mean if you look at blowfeld's cat online you'll find lots of different parodies of that and i guess would you say um sanchez's lizard is sort of a riff on the on blowfeld's cat yeah, I, I, th- I think any Bond villain that's got a, a pet close by. Yeah. I think that's probably what they're going for, isn't it? Yeah, it's definitely a, definitely a reference. But I, I, I didn't didn't want to get to the letter Z and not have referenced Blofeld's cat. So uh, there we have it. Who's next? S is for Spottiswood, Roger Spottiswood. Well, it's John Roger Spottiswood, actually, born in 1945. He is a British-Canadian director and um, he was born in Canada but raised in the UK. Um, another link to childhood, his father, Raymond, was actually a film theoretician and he worked at the National Film Board of Canada during the 40s. So then in the 60s, a young Roger, he entered into the film industry um, as a trainee editor where he worked with John Bloom. And then in the 70s, he he, uh, he, he took on editing films of uh, Sam Peckinpah. Mm. So, yeah, we got to the 80s and that's where he turns his hand to directing. Um, so of the ones that he's directed that I've heard of, it was 1989, Turner and Hooch. Oh yeah, to stop or my mum will shoot. Um, oh, no, <laughs> <laughs> but he's he's done others. You might have seen them: Terror Train, um, Under Fire, Shoot to Kill, Air America. It's it's pretty crazy that he got the uh, got the gig, and I'm sure we'll cover that when we when we cover Tomorrow Never Dies. We'll delve into how he got it. But he said uh, with Bond. I knew it was probably going to allow me to pursue my TV series further. So I signed. I was thrilled of being picked up. Actually, after the release of the Bond film, the producers came back to me to offer me another one. But I didn't have any juice left for an immediate encore. So there you go. He could have done The World Is Not Enough. There were some reports. Again, we'll go into this when we get to Tomorrow Never Dies. But reports of problems on set. So we've heard of problems on set between Terry Hatcher and Pierce Brosnan, but also between Roger Spottiswood and Bruce Fierstein, um, who was on location. He was rewriting um, scripts uh, on the morning before a shoot. God. And uh, obviously stress level's pretty high. And so the Daily Mail, yeah, I know it's the Daily Mail, but they reported that they were no longer on speaking terms. All the crew had threatened to resign. And one of them said, all the happiness and teamwork, which is the hallmark of Bond, has disappeared completely. 
Pierce Brosnan denied it. He said it was nothing more than good old creative argy-bargy. And Roger Spottiswood said, it's all been made up. Nothing important really went wrong. Right, so something did there. Yeah. Nothing important, but something did. But yeah, we'll delve deeper into that. Um, so he, Roger Spottiswood was also, he was a member of the writing team on 48 Hours. Um, okay. And in 2000, he directed The Sixth Day. Have you seen that? That's the Arnie one, isn't it? No, I've never yeah. seen it. Um, so that was his, his first film after Tomorrow Never Dies, which which he got because he'd made a success of Tomorrow Never Dies, budget-wise, you know, <laughs> not necessarily the, the film. I mean, to be fair to him, Tomorrow Never Dies, it, it, it's it got some decent action. Yeah, it's And cohesive, it moves along it? at a decent pace. I mean, sorry, so, it's not cohesive, but yeah, no, it does move along. It's a, it's an imp- it, Out of all the Bond films, it's the one that's most like an action movie. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, and so since then, the most recent success he's done was a street cat named Bob. Have you seen that? That was in 2016. Well, that was him, was it? That was him. And it, it won the best British film at the uh, National Film Awards in 2017. But yeah, I look forward to the Tomorrow Never Dies because I think there's going to be some juicy stuff in that. Yeah. Was it Spotty's Wood that they said, what, was it Judy Dench ran into him on the street and they said, oh, I just saw Roger Spottiswood and Barbara Broccoli said, or Michael G. Wilson said, oh, I'm sad that you didn't run him over or something. Oh, was it him? Right. <laughs> but if you remember that anecdote, we'll, yeah, do, we'll, delve, yeah. we'll delve into that. We'll delve into that when we get there. S is for Steers, John Steers. Now, as I was talking about Bob Simmons earlier, um, being an instrumental part to the success of the earlier Bond films. John Steers is, is another cornerstone of the franchise that, that cannot be understated. His impact cannot be understated. He was a uh, special effects artist and he worked on the first eight James Bond films, winning an Academy Award for Visual, visual Effects in 1965 for Thunderball. And he also uh, shares an Academy Award um, for his work on Star Wars as well in 1977. So um, he was born in 1934 and he studied at um, art school in Harrow and then went on to become a draftsman with the Air Ministry. Um, again, quite a common route for people working on Bond going into the into the military. But in an interview, uh, he said, I used to live close to Denham Studios. Movies were sort of the local industry in that area and I often sneaked on the lot to see what was going on. I finally landed a few roles as a child actor. My biggest success in that respect came when I landed a part in a film called This Happy Breed in 1944. Um, He was then uh, put into national service and was a a dispatch rider. And then he joined a a firm of architects um, where he sort of um, was able to hone his passion for model making and and, um, stuff like that by building um, scale models for, for clients. He also loved model aircraft as well, um, building model aircraft and stuff like that. And so um, he was discovered by the special effects expert, Bill Warrington at Rank Studios. He saw some of um, John Steer's work and he commissioned him to build uh, aircraft for Lewis Gilbert's film about the life of Douglas Bader, Bader, Douglas Bader, the reach for the sky. And so from there, he, he then signed a contract to uh, work for the rank organization and uh, he worked on a number of 
different films and working several times with Lewis Gilbert, actually, um, on uh, doing model boats and planes for A Night to Remember. That's the, I think that's the Titanic film, isn't it? And then Carver Name with Pride and Sink the Bismarck. Um, they were in the late 50s, early 60s. And he, he did quite a few rank films, to be honest, um, including another one with Lewis Gilbert, the HMS Defiant in 1962. But then he was hired by Cubby and Harry to create the miniature work for Dr. No's Crab Key. So I don't know if you remember the shot, but there's a bit at the end where they have to blow up Crab Key and it's, he's on the on the on the docks. Yeah. Um, and there's like a little boat and there's a thing that pops out, a little satellite dish. He did all of that. I um, mean, it's really, really impressive, really stands up to the test of time. He went from that to work on Call Me Buona and not quite as, as um, creatively fulfilling for him um, as uh, Do- Dr. No had been. But then he was um, basically made the head of the special effects department for From Russia With Love. And for that film, he created and flew the first remote controlled helicopter used in a film. So that must mm. be for the, the helicopter chase sequence. Yeah. He also did the um, the, the the boots, the Rosa Klebs boots um, with the knives that pop out of them. And he did the, uh, the attache case as well. So this is all really... Uh, impressive on-screen, memorable on-screen work, but it would all pale into in, into insignificance in Goldfinger, where he created first of all the the laser that nearly um, cuts Bond in half. He did the steel rim bowler hat, um, which uh, thrown by Odd Job, um, and there's a really really good clip online on YouTube. If you just search John Steers, you'll it will show you this interview with John Steers where he talks about how the hat was done and how they attached it to ropes and span it across the room and, and how it chops off the statue's head. It's it's fascinating stuff. But then he worked on the Aston Martin DB5. And he basically was tasked by Ken Adam, who came up with the gadget ideas to then make them reality. And he said that he spent the day looking at it, thinking about it. He said he went for his lunch, came back, got a drill and just started cutting this Aston Martin to pieces. <laughs> and bear in mind, these were prototype cars. They had like, I think it was like two or three of them that they could work with. So, you know, it takes a real craftsman to be able to, to go in and do that. But, you know, he put all those gadgets in there. He said, I was never certain we could make the ejector seat work. But in the end, we did the stunt in one take. Wow. And the uh, oil spill that shoots out the back, that was real. But apparently you couldn't have the oil uh, jet shooter filled up and have the um bulletproof plate in the back so it was either one or the other so they have to take out all the oil and and then put the 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 bulletproof shield in um he also i don't know how true this is but he also apparently designed a mechanism that would fire out um nails out the back to discourage uh, people chasing them um and apparently Scotland Yard asked that the device not be used in the film for fear that it might inspire criminals. Wow. So interesting that they actually brought that back for No Time to Die. Um, mm. It shoots out those those nails out the back. So that's interesting. For then, for Thunderball, the film that won him the Oscar, his effects included a the, the motorcycle that fired the rockets, um, the underwater um, vehicles. He did a lot of those. He made the large scale model of the Vulcan bomber, which was then sank into the water in the Bahamas. And he also did a life size version of um, the Disco Volante as well, which they blew up at the end. Um, 
of the movie and this was the film that brought him the oscar and talking about the oscar he said i was very proud very honored because the oscar is really the highest accolade of them all it's a humbling experience too for i'm only doing what i love doing and the award is one hell of a plus you know you don't make pictures with the thought of an oscar in your mind but actually winning one is a thrill of a lifetime i hope to win another one someday interestingly he wasn't even at the oscars and wasn't aware that he'd been nominated (laughs) somehow (laughs) and he got a call the next day saying you won an oscar so a bit different to how it is nowadays but he reunited with lewis gilbert on you only live twice um and he built the spaceships um he did the um the the rocket that takes off in um the volcano and he also added the rocket launchers to little nelly from there he then worked on a chitty chitty bang bang where he made the flying car i mean this work is just incredible really he then struck up, this is interesting, I didn't know this, but he struck up a lifelong friendship with George Lazenby on, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. They had a shared love of motorbikes. And this was a friendship. It was one of the few friendships I think Lazenby kept after Bond was with John Steers. They b- remained friends for the rest of their lives. Um, but obviously it was John Steers that set off the avalanche. Um, and he also built and blew up the Piz Gloria model as well for that film. Uh, he didn't do Diamonds Are Forever because that was a film that was mainly made in America. And then Derek Meddins was made a special effects supervisor on Live and Let Die. And around that period, John Steers set up his own company and he did a load of films for different people. He did um, Oh Lucky Man, Theatre of Blood. Um, and then he returned to Bond for the final time to do the effects for The Man with the Golden Gun, the centrepiece being Scaramanga's Flying Car. Uh, which caused him a lot, a lot of issues, actually. He said, I was almost beaten by that damn flying car and golden gun. I designed the model to actually fly by way of a special motor that was to be built by a firm in Texas. When it came time to shoot the sequence, the motor, of course, was not ready, and I had to play around with a very, very underpowered motor. The trick came off very marginally and managed to squeak through, and that's the best kind of thing that happens all the time, and you just have to meet the challenges the best way you can. I mean, the flying car and golden gun is 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 one of the most memorable parts of that film i think Mm. um but yeah i mean that was it really for john steers with bond um he said in an interview with starlog in 1981 he says i wouldn't do another bond because the team spirit is gone there was an absolute aura about the early pictures because i seemed like we were breaking new ground and everywhere everybody was pulling his weight but when sean connery left and roger moore came in it just wasn't the same at all i was hoping really hoping that kevin mcclory and i could pull together another bond film with sean connery Kevin has the rights to the Bond character now. Ten years after Thunderball, he could make his own movies as written for him. He spent over a million dollars of his own thing trying to launch the Warhead project. But unfortunately, things just didn't gel. And he didn't come back and do Never Say Never Again, sadly, which would have been uh, a real shame. But before that, uh, before 1981, he had a call in 1976 from George Lucas. He loved, George Lucas loved the Bond films. This is something we've talked about before. And he wanted to know if he could get the guy who had done the effects on the Bond film to work for him on a little film that he'd written called Star Wars. Um, and the rest is, you know, as we say, is history. He, The work on that film is phenomenal. I think we always think of industrial light and magic when we think of Star Wars. But I also think John Steers is, is, is owned a, a huge um, debt of gratitude by that franchise. It earned him his second Oscar. Some of the stuff that he built for that included Luke's land speeder, um, which they used. They put mirrors around the bottom to make it look like it floated. He designed the lightsabers and built those. He did the, some of the Death Star and the cannons. 
And then C-3PO and R2-D2 were also John Steer's creations as well. I mean, obviously working from other people's designs, but he brought them to life on screen. Uh, he, he worked again with Sean Connery on Outland, a science fiction film. But he later retired from films uh, in the late 80s. He had been struggling to get back in to make his own film. And he did the film. I think his last film that he did was uh, Charlie Sheen film Navy Seals in 1993. He then sold his estate where he lived in Buckinghamshire. A bit of trivia here to uh, Ozzy Osbourne and then retired to California. And like I said, he, he rekindled his uh, relationship with George Lazenby while they were living in Malibu at the same time. They would uh, take their motorbikes out every Sunday. They were neighbours and they would go out and to, to bike meets um, in Malibu together. But sadly, um, he, he actually did return to the films uh, and made The Mask of Zorro, which I believe is a Martin Campbell film, is it? Uh, yeah, I think it is, yeah. But sadly fell out with the, the the producers on that and left partway through due to artistic disagreements and sadly died in Malibu in 1999. But I mean, his again, his input on the films is uh, is, is incredible, really. What a, what a legend. Well, his, his input on film, because, yeah. you know, the the stuff he created for Star Wars is still still being used now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they've iterated on it, improved it, but I mean, without his initial work and bringing it to life in the first place and making it work then, it just wouldn't have have lasted this long, would it? Yeah, well, you can cover him again when you do the A to Z of uh, Star Wars. Mm, No chance. (laughs) Right, so to wrap things up on the letter S, we'll just do as we usually do some of the other creators that fall under the letter S that we aren't covering in as huge amount of detail, but couldn't let them go without mentioning. So who have you got, Brendan? I've got uh, Linus Sandgren, and he's a cinematographer for No Time to Die. And we did talk about him in the No Time to Die episode. He um, he's a Swedish cinematographer, born in 1972, and um, he won an Academy Award and a BAFTA for his work on La La Land in 2016, um, and also a BAFTA for Best Cinematography on First Man in 2019. He's he's known for his the way he shoots in the formats that he shoots it's um it's quite unconventional uh so la la land was was shot in cinemascope on a ratio of i mean this doesn't mean a lot to me but <laughs> you know uh 255 over 1 so um and and he uses he, he uses IMAX cameras which he did in no time to die and he was a key part of the reason why he got that job was because um of his experience and shooting different methods so um that's something that really pays off i think with uh with some of those scenes in no time to die definitely yeah yeah it's got the most no imax stuff in any bond film hasn't it it has yeah right another cinematographer we've covered him recently roberto schaefer also under the letter s he was a regular collaborator with mark forster and so did the cinematography on quantum of solace and so you can revisit that episode to learn a bit more. But he talked about uh, that film um, saying how uh, um, following Casino Royale, we needed to keep him Bond more real, less enigmatic. And we tried to allow his persona to show through his emotions, and personal attachments, while allowing him to be brutal and ruthless in his quest. So I won't say any more, anything more about Roberto Schaefer, Roberto Schaefer other than, um, yeah, he did Quantum of Solace, a load of... Um, um, Mark Forster films. Um, and if you want to learn more about him and his work, 
revisit our Quantum of Solace episode, but more recently he was um, the director of photography on Geostorm, the Red Sea Diving Resort, Red Sea Diving Resort, Machine Gun Preacher, and he also did some episodes of The Thick of It, which I thought was quite interesting. Mm. Mm. Um, Nadim Sawalia, and he was, uh, well, he's born in 1935. He's a Jordanian British actor. He's also the father of Nadia and Julia Ah. Sawala, who are um, famous actors in their own right. Uh, Probably say Julia's more famous. She was in Absolutely Fabulous for people who have seen that. Um, Nadia is a loose woman, I think. Yes, she is. Yeah, um, well, she and was. That, that that isn't a slur, by the way, for people who aren't British. That's a it's a panel show presented by an all female uh, panel. Oh, <laughs> get myself in hot water. Um, so Nadim Sawalia, he starred in two Bond films. He was in The Spy Who Loved Me as Fekish, Aziz Fekish, Fekish and yeah. uh, The Living Daylights. He was a Tangier police chief. So we haven't actually covered both the films he was in yet. Mm. But we will. And he might oh, get another well. mention then. And then and finally, uh, Mary Stavin, who is a Swedish actor, model, beauty queen. She won Miss World 1977 in London. Uh, she appeared in both Octopussy and A View to a Kill, playing different people. So uh, in Octopussy, she played one of Octopussy's girls, you know, rowing the boat and appearing in her and wearing those funny tracksuits. And then she returned for a much bigger role in A View to a Kill as Kimberly Jones, the British agent who pilots the iceberg submarine at the start of the film. One of my favourite uh, gadgets <laughs> oh, in the Bond dear. world. Um, not much to say about Mary, but uh, uh, other films that she made includes a film which I thought the title was brilliant, Alien Terminator, which um, came out in 1988, which also starred Roger Moore's daughter, Deborah. Um, she's in The Opponent. She's in Caddyshack 2, Howling 5, and she also was in two episodes of Twin Peaks as well. In a tribute to Roger Moore um, for the Daily Mail, she was interviewed, she was asked about him. She said, Bond is remembered for his martini, shaken, not stirred. But off camera, it was Roger who waited on us. Whenever he saw me sitting with the other Bond girls, Maud Adams and Christina Wayborn, all chatting away in Swedish, he'd come up and ask if we'd like coffee, milk, sugar, and he'd bring the drinks to us. There aren't many stars willing to be a tea boy. He was an amazing, sensitive man. And the only person I've ever known who I've never heard anyone say a bad word about. I have no hesitation. I had no hesitation when they asked me to come back for A View to a Kill. That was where I had my first screen kiss, and it was with Roger Moore. What a great place to finish on. A bit of praise yeah. for Sir Roger. So we should finish every episode. <laughs> Just with a Roger Moore anecdote. Yeah, yeah we should bring that in. <laughs> Today's Roger Moore anecdote. Uh, if you've got a good one, if you've read a good Roger Moore anecdote, send them in. Please, please email them to us at podcast at jamesbond a to z.co.uk as well as your underappreciated bond movie moments um, or anything you want to say to us really uh send it in on email you can also find us on social media whereabouts can they find us brendan at james bond a to z on twitter instagram and facebook so our next episode will cover the life and career of harry saltzman one of the original producers of the james bond films whose final James Bond film was A Man With A Golden Gun. And uh, I've got a rich life, rich story to tell, so that's going to be a good one. Um, so with that, it just remains for me to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week. Thanks for listening. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast 
is hosted and produced by Tom Butler and Brendan Duffy, with music by Tom Ingemels and artwork by Helen Dolly. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. I'm a member of Spectre. Spectre? Spectre. Spectre? Spectre. Spectre? Spectre. Special executive for counterintelligence, terrorism, revenge, extortion. The four great cornerstones of power headed by the greatest brains in the world. Correction. Criminal brains. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.